Um, well, you've had the opportunity to hear from you know, our lead pastor, Chris, as we kind of walk through this series of, of what we're basically saying is that if I were to sit down at a coffee shop with you and you were to say, Brian, tell me about Jesus. I'd be like, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. How long do you have? <laughs> but if I had 30 minutes... Here's the Jesus that I know. Here's the Jesus that I would tell you about. And, and these messages or sermons or talks, whatever you want to call these, tend to be a little bit more personal because I'm sharing really the Jesus I know is the Jesus that has impacted me over my years and in my faith and how Jesus has shaped and molded me and my view of him. And I know that if we were to sit in that same coffee shop and I were to say, tell me about your Jesus and the Jesus you know and the Jesus you know and the Jesus that you have experienced, we're going to get a lot of similarities, but we're also going to get a lot of specifics that might be different. And so I get the chance to just share a little bit of here's what, here's what out of scripture, here's what Jesus has done in my life and specifically the Jesus that I know. And, and the Jesus that I know, the, the part that is usually a struggle. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you know that this is a struggle. If you're a non-believer, it's like you don't know where to start. You have the relationship with Jesus, and then you have the imitation of Jesus. The relationship with, the G with Jesus is, hey, we're, we know each other. We're together on some form or fashion. The imitation of Jesus is the, well, the do's and the don'ts. It's the being like him. It's the, here's what I'm supposed to do, the to-do's, if you will. And we're, we struggle sometimes on how they work together. And again, if you're a believer, then it's, I have a relationship that I'm supposed to do these, and if I don't do these, then what happens to this relationship? It's kind of an odd spot to be in sometimes, right? Because we don't do this thing perfectly. And uh, so I heard a phrase a long time ago, and I want to tell you the heart behind it, and you've, if you've been here a number of weeks, you've heard me say this, that we stumble in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of those Brian-isms that you get stuck with. But we stumble in the right direction. That phrase has meant so much to me because of that tension of the relationship with Jesus, but then the imitation of Jesus. And I had somebody explain it to me in that way of, Brian, it's stumbling in the right direction, and that has stuck with me. But I want you to see the scripture behind that phrase. I want you to see how, how that phrase is not just a phrase, but how it's rooted in scripture and what it actually means and where that actually comes from. So if you got your Bibles, head over to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, we, and actually verse 9, we're going to get a story or an account of Jesus walking somebody through basically that phrase of what it means to truly stumble in the right direction. So if you got your Bibles, take a look at it. If not, I'll put it on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. Now we can read through that, and it's a pretty short story, a short passage. But man, there's a lot in there, and it's very important that we get the order right. If you're going to understand my heart behind the Jesus I know in, in regards to stumbling in the right direction, you've got to make sure when we walk through this passage, we get the order right. Because you could have all the different elements, but if the order is wrong, things fall apart, don't they? If you do things in the wrong order, the wrong way, it just falls apart. There is a certain order to things, all right? If, if you're merging into traffic, believe it or not, some of you don't know this. You need to take notes on this part. There's an order. Every other, every other, every other. If you see a blue pilot honking at you, that's me telling you you're not doing the right order, right? <laughs> Roundabouts have an order to them. If you're not aware of this, yes, preach. <laughs> I was sitting, 
I was sitting before Chick-fil-A closed their doors for their remodel, which I'll tell you how happy I am about that. But <laughs> I am surviving. But I was sitting in that parking lot waiting for my yield to come out into that, <laughs> that mess of a roundabout that we have right there. And I saw somebody do something a little interesting. And it's not the first time I've seen this. I'm sure you've seen this where somebody stopped there and then they have this moment of, I've got a shortcut. The shortcut's going the wrong way. But it's shorter because I just need to go to Walmart. So just a quick little left. But what you see happen is all the other traffic starts diving and moving out of the way and stopping all because somebody wanted to do something a little bit differently, do something out of order. The order of things makes a huge difference. We have to go in the right order. Same thing here. As we read through this, we're going to go back through them verse by verse. And I, I have to have you pay attention to the right order or it's going to mess everything else up. So look at the order with me. Go back to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. What did Jesus say to him? Two words. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. Now, that, just that first part. It says, Matthew, set the scene. Matthew's sitting at his tax collector's booth. Not doing anything, minding his own business, doing his job. Jesus comes up and says these two words. Now, you have to understand here, this would have been a shock for everybody, including Matthew. Why is Jesus coming and talking to me? Why is Jesus asking me this? Everybody else would have been thinking it. Matthew would have been thinking it. Everybody would be shocked, surprised, and amazed that Jesus would offer this invitation to Matthew because of his profession. Now, I need to help you understand because we see this a lot in Scripture where tax collectors are usually lumped up into tax collectors and sinners. That doesn't mean that tax collectors or any of our tax assessors or anybody that works for tax, tax commission should be lumped totally into that, right? We know some, but they're great people. They're great people. It's their job. They do a great job. But understand it in Bible day. Understand in the Bible day why tax collectors were despised. First of all, most of the time, many of them stole. They were thieves. They were stealing from their own people because these tax collectors worked for the Roman government, but they were Jews. So you had the Romans didn't like them because they were Jews. And you have the Jews didn't like them because they worked for the Roman government. So they were in a no-win situation, and of course that led them to live a life that was not quite as honest as we would want them to. So you have Matthew sitting at his tax collectors with nobody really likes him except fellow tax collectors. And he's sitting there minding his own business. Jesus comes up and says the two words, which were, follow me. He says, follow me. Now up to this point... He's minding his own business. He's sitting in his, his tax collector's booth. He's doing his job. Has he done anything to earn, deserve, or to seek out Jesus saying these two words? Yes or no? No. He's done absolutely nothing. Nothing. One more time so we're clear. Nothing. Matthew hasn't done a thing. He didn't go out looking for Jesus. We, he didn't ask Jesus a question. He didn't do anything to earn or deserve Jesus coming to him and saying, follow me. He's done absolutely nothing other than be there. That's all he did. He was there at his tax collector's booth. Jesus is the one that took all the initiative. Jesus came up. Jesus stopped. Jesus looked at him. Jesus uttered those two words, that invitation that said, follow me. Now, after that moment, you could imagine, even though it's a very short verse here, you can imagine what is going through Matthew's mind. What just happened? <laughs> Why is he talking to me? Why is he asking me this? And, and then he recognizes the, the magnitude of this invitation, this once in a lifetime, this life-changing opportunity to, to leave what he was doing and to go and follow Jesus. And even though the decision is made quick on words and on paper, his mind had been reeling of, Okay, let me weigh this out. What happens if I walk away from this, I lose my job. If I don't do this, I, I'm, I'm basically 
giving up everything that I know. How am I going to make my money? What am I going to do next? What, who exactly is Jesus? What is he going to have me do? We don't have any record that he would have known any of those things. Most likely he had no clue other than I've got an invitation from Jesus. What's my answer? Yes or no? I got an answer. Well, yes or no? Right now, what is it? And in that split second decision, he made a life-changing decision. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. didn't do anything. wasn't asking for it. He did nothing. But when Jesus offered, look at what it says here. It says, Jesus came up to him and said, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. The moment Matthew got up and followed Jesus, that was a change. We call it a life changer, right? a major life change of I was, then God, now I am. Matthew was a tax collector, but then Jesus said, come follow me, and now he is a Christ follower. It's something new, something brand new. And what's interesting is we don't see necessarily, other than the fact that he physically walked with Jesus in this moment, we don't see any outward changes for Matthew yet. But I'm telling you, we know that there's a massive heart change within him. Here's how we know this. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, once we say yes to Jesus, that means we are now in Christ. So that's Matthew. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So that's a new life. He had an old life that was based around his profession. He had a lifestyle based around that profession and those groups, that group of people. The moment Jesus said, follow me, and the moment then he said, yes, all of that changed. New life. No longer is his past determining who he is, his identity, or his future. He was a tax collector, but he's not known by a tax collector anymore. He walked away from that in that life, and now he's saying, I'm Matthew, the follower of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians says, he's given a new life. And up until this point, the only thing that he has done is said yes to Jesus. That's the only thing. He was sitting at his booth doing his job. Jesus sends him, offers him an invitation, and Matthew's only response, not even what we have in scripture as being verbal, it's just he got up and left. He got up and followed Jesus. Now here's what we have next. Verse 10. Here's where we start to see some outward changes. Verse 10 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So now we're at a new phase for Matthew's life. He's been radically changed. His life has been forever changed. He's now got this new life because he said no to what he was doing and said yes to following Jesus for his future. So now he has this new life. He's like, well, what do I do with this new life? What does this new life look like? What am I supposed to do with this new life? He begins to figure that out on some level. And What's interesting is he begins to do what Jesus did for him, right? As Christians, if you're a believer and you've experienced that new life, that life-changed moment where you said yes to Jesus, the rest of our life is figuring out what we do with that. And oftentimes, I'm guilty of this as well, is often we lump everything with our old life in our old life and says, nope, I can't have anything to do with that. And that includes a lot of people. Now, are there things we need to leave to follow Jesus? Absolutely. Do we have to leave everything to follow Jesus? Not necessarily, because that's not what Matthew did here. Matthew actually went back to the people he knew. Who's he having dinner with? Who are the two types of people, it says? Yes, those, those sinners and those other tax collectors, because those are the only people that he knew. Those are the people he had relationships with. So he goes back, even though he has a new life, he goes back to the people he had a relationship with. He said, you've got to meet Jesus. <laughs> you won't believe what's begun to happen. And so he has dinner with Jesus and Jesus' disciples, but also all of his friends. 
See, that's exactly how Jesus treated Matthew. Jesus treated Matthew by saying, you're the one that needs me. I'll go to you. Now, Matthew has picked up on that and says, who else needs Jesus? Let's bring them into this as well. That's why I talked about the invite being a big deal. Who's not here that needs to be here? Right? Let's go to them. I mean, it's great that you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here, but let's not be okay with just us. Who else needs to hear Jesus? That's Jesus' heart, and that has begun to rub off on Matthew. See, what we see in Matthew's life is the more that he's around Jesus, the more Jesus rubs off on Matthew, right? And that's just the way things work. We imitate people that we're around the most. That's why if you, you meet a couple, an old married couple, they've been married years and years and years, and you observe them, you're like, my goodness, you guys are like the same person, but two. <laughs> it's because they've spent so many years together. That's why you see your kids start acting like you. Not always a good thing. Why? Because they're around you. It's what they see. We imitate who we're around. And so the more we're around Jesus, guess what? the more we're going to become like him. The more we're around Jesus, the more we're going to begin to imitate him and become like him. That's what we see with Matthew. He doesn't begin to imitate Jesus the moment he said yes. At that point, he's just, okay, you're going this way. I'll go that way. You're turning this way. I'll go that way. (laughs) It's truly just following. But at some point, Matthew begins to imitate Jesus, begins to do what Jesus would do, becomes more and more like Jesus. And we see that at this dinner party. Where it's Jesus and his disciples, Matthew and all of Matthew's friends saying, what Jesus did for me, Matthew's saying, I want this for the people that I know. He begins to actually model what Jesus had done. In the Christian world, this is the part where we start saying, well, this is like what we're supposed to do, right? These are the do's and don'ts, or scripture calls them the, the good works. Faith without works is dead. It's the good deeds. It's the good works. It's the things we're supposed to do. But you have to understand, that came, notice the order. It came after he said yes, and it came after he spent time with Jesus. He didn't do anything to deserve the invitation. All he did was say yes and follow. And over time, the more he was around Jesus, the more he became like him, and the more he became Uh, an imitator of Jesus. Just start thinking of just maybe what some of these things are. In church world, I mean, I already talked about one today. I talked about inviting, right? I said, grab the communication card. Who do you want to be here? Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus did that. Jesus went to people that didn't know him. So we try to imitate that. We try to model after him or use him as a model. Things like serving. Well, of course we we want you to serve. And I've got plenty of opportunities for you to, to do that in the church and outside of the church. Why? Because we're most like Christ when we serve. He modeled that. He even told his disciples that. After he washed their feet and served, he says, I've laid out an example for you. Now you go do that to other people. Right? So we, we do invite. We do share our story. We do serve. We are generous. We give. We encourage. We, we do groups. We, we do all these things, not because it's the church thing to do, but because it's the Jesus thing to do. Because that's what he modeled for us. He says, this is what it looks like. Now that you have this new life, here's what it begins to look like. So we're imitators of him, but we have to be around him. That imitation, notice the order, it comes after. It has to come after. It doesn't come before, it comes after. But as we know, the Pharisees and religious leaders didn't quite get that. They didn't get it at all. Verse 11, here's their side of it, what they were thinking. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's Jesus' response, because as he heard it, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, here's a little Bible study tool for you if you do this. Uh, this is what's great about having like a paper Bible. If you look in here, you read that I desire mercy, not sacrifice part. There's a little A in my Bible. It's a little footnote, which usually directs you to another place in the Bible. So understand, this is the great sarcasm of Jesus. Is He's talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees who would have thought very highly of themselves. Right? They were scholars in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the scriptures. And so what Jesus does is he says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from Hosea. He quotes them an Old Testament prophet. He says, that scripture that you pride yourselves on of knowing and memorizing, go and learn what it means. That would have been very offensive for Jesus to have said and for the Pharisees to have heard. Jesus called him out and says, you think you know it. It's in your head, but it's not in your heart and you don't understand it. So he calls him out and he says, you've totally missed it. It's here, but it's not here. So go and learn what this actually means. See, the Pharisees had, as I said, a very high view of themselves. It was all about them, specifically their reputation. The Pharisees would not have done what Jesus did because they would not want to associate with anybody that they would deem below them. They said their reputation is at stake. Their status is at stake. And so for them, and what it can be for us at times, is it just becomes all about me. It's the I. It's, well, what, if, what would people think about me? What what would this do to me and my reputation and my status and, and how does this affect me? And all of a sudden we start to shift everything through the lens of what about me? It becomes all about the I and all about the me. And that's where Jesus had to correct the Pharisees. He says, it's not about you. Look, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. It's not about you, he's saying. It's not about you. It's not even based on you. More so those that don't know him. See, what's interesting is as we kind of walk through the story of Matthew, you see these two sides. I mentioned it earlier, right? You have the relationship with Jesus, but then you also have, what was the other part? The, the imitation of Jesus. And what we see with Matthew is he develops both of these. They kind of work together. He develops both of these. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were lacking a lot of the relationship piece. Right? They were doing what the law said for the most part. They misunderstood a lot of it, but they, they were doing a lot of this for the most part. What they were lacking was the relationship piece. And that's what Matthew started with. That's what Matthew had. All he did was say yes. He didn't earn it or deserve it. Didn't do anything other than just say yes. And what I think we see here is that Jesus desires that relationship before he desires any kind of imitation. And somewhere along the way in, in our faith as Christians, we have somewhere said, well, I've got to figure everything out before. We get the order wrong, don't we? We get the order wrong, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm asking you to follow me. That's it. There was nowhere in here where Jesus says, come and follow me, and here's the list of everything I'm asking you to do. <laughs> follow me under these circumstances. Follow me with this disclaimer. Follow me as long as you abide by all of this. No, he just says, follow me. Follow me and let's see where that goes. Follow me and let me see what changes in your life. Follow me and let's see what happens. He starts with that and not this list. Sometimes we do that backwards. See, it's important that we pay attention not just to what we think about God, but more so even what he thinks about us. Here, let me read this for you. This is uh, C.S. Lewis. He said, it matters what we think about God. It most certainly does. But it matters infinitely more what God thinks about us. It matters what we think about God, but it matters infinitely more what God actually thinks about 
us? What does God think? Because usually we look through this of what do I think, what do others think, but what does God actually think? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Would you like an answer? I'll give you an answer. I was going to give it to you even if you didn't want it. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 19, 17 through 19. says, he brought this good news, talking about Jesus. Jesus brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. So he says, Jesus came and preached to both, the Jews and the Gentiles, those that were close to God, those that were far from God, both. Verse 18, now all of us, say all of us, all of us. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because, here's the why, because of what Christ has done for us, not what we have done for ourselves, not for what we have done on Christ's behalf, for what Christ has done for who? For us, verse 19, here's what that means. So now you Gentiles, those of you that were far from God, now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. Look, you are members of God's family. If you hear one thing, hear that. You are members of God's family. You are his kids. That's how God views you. That's what God thinks of you. But oftentimes we're like the Pharisees and we get this out of order. It's just our tendency, right? It's just our nature. We tend to build things a little bit out of order. And here's, here's what it tends to be. And this is exactly how the Pharisees worked. Is it starts with me, doesn't it? It's what I can do. It's what's in my control. It's my reputation. It's my status. It's everything about me. And so, of course, everything about my life is going to be built upon what? Or who? Me. Builds on me. So that says if it's all about me and it's based on me, then I've got a lot that I have to take care of. I have to do what's always right. I have to do the right thing all the time. I have to develop this righteousness that I hear. I, I have to do all these good things and these good works. And I've got to give and I've got to serve and I've got to invite and I've got to show up. And I've got to do all these things. Because if I do enough of those, if I do enough good things, then maybe, just maybe, I'll finally get to a place where I have this new life, this good life, this life of blessing, as I always hear Brian talk about it on a Sunday morning, finally I get something out of it. I get to have the peace and the freedom in this new life, but i got to make sure I keep doing everything right. And if I finally get to this new life, then I'm finally able to deserve and earn this. Because only with this new life that I've created because of all of my works then finally God would say that scripture we know, that well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, finally I get to hear God. Oh man, it's been so much work and effort, but I have done it. This is the faith that we tend to build. This is the faith that a lot of the Pharisees we see in scripture that they were building towards, and it's how we get it out of order and we get it wrong. But I know this is the case because I've lived this. I'm sure you've lived seasons of your life like this. Where what we do down here is contingent on if this ever actually happens or we feel like it actually happens. In fact, the University of Notre Dame, their sociology department, did a study basically on this. They went around and asked a bunch of teenagers across the country, an American Christian teenager, how do you get to God? That was the question. And the vast majority of those students, they found two things. One, many of them had the same beliefs as their parents. So parents, we've got to work on this. The second thing they noticed was this was the model. Most of those American Christian teenagers said, well, if you live a good and moral life and you're fair and you share, you will get to God. Now, living this life for a season of my life, 
I can tell you, as you can imagine, this is a very shaky way to live, isn't it? Because what happens if I have a bad day and my good deeds aren't so good? All of a sudden, this new life that I have been striving for and the fact of, of God's acceptance and God's love, is that now in jeopardy because I didn't have a great day? Because there's some things, I mean, I'm a human, I'm limited in what I can do, so if it's based on me, it doesn't take much for this to all fall apart and to shatter, and we've experienced that probably. You go through seasons of brokenness where, God, do you even care, do you even love, why? Why are we asking that? Because we feel like we don't have the life that we were promised, and we don't have the life that we were promised because I haven't worked hard enough, I didn't do enough right, I did something wrong, and, and all of that burden is weighing on our shoulders, and I'm telling you, it's not intended to. This is the way we tend to build, and it will not work. It is not sustainable. It falls over very quickly. Flip side is what we see in, in the Bible. It's exactly what Matthew walked through. Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Did he do anything to deserve Jesus' invitation? Yes or no? No, he didn't deserve it at all. He didn't do anything. Nothing. God's acceptance was there, period. Jesus came to him and gave him an invitation. Come and follow me. Those two words, follow me. No explanation, no disclaimers, no ifs, ands, or buts. It was, I love you, and I want you to follow me. It's Romans 5.8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We haven't done anything to deserve it or earn it. It's there. It's ours. It's an invitation from him to us, period. God's acceptance and his love is un, it's unconditional. It's what we were saying, the reckless love. It's never-ending it is a reckless love because it starts with him. And then we are given the gift of new life, what seven, Second Corinthians said. That when we say yes to him, now we have this new life. Now, between this and this, there is one thing that has to happen that is on us. Yes. The answer is yes. When Jesus says, follow me, we say yes or no. We do or we don't. But other than that, nothing's changed. Go back to Matthew. You do it in order. Jesus said, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. Nothing else changed other than him saying yes and then new life happening. I was, then God, now I am. That new life gives us just that, a brand new life, a life that is full of the hopes and the promises and the grace and the forgiveness that we, we know in Scripture. All the promises are true of that new life. Now, out of that new life, we begin to figure out, well, what do I do with it? Out of the overflow of our heart, honestly, just out of gratitude, we say, because of this new life and because of what God has done for me, what can I do? So sure, we do good things, and James tells us that faith without works is dead. You do have to have this, but in the right order. We try to put this at the bottom where it's built on us, and it's not. Out of our new life, we get the opportunity to serve and to do well. We don't do it perfectly all the time, but then at, at the end, I'm not saying it's the least, but then it's me. It's my reputation, it's my status, it's what I get, it's, it's the me. A lot more stable, isn't it? A lot more stable. See, this is stumbling in the right direction to me. These can falter, these can fall off, these don't move. See how that works? When you have it upside down, when these start to falter, everything above it falters. Stumbling in the right direction in my life has been, I don't always do it right. I don't always have great days and great weeks. It's definitely not always about me. It can't be, but sometimes I make it about me. And so when these don't work, my new life is still my new life. And God's love and his acceptance of me does not change. First John says this. It says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. 
You've probably heard that before, right? I mean, if you've been in church, you've heard Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me. I can't think of anything more impactful, though. In my own life, growing up in the church, knowing Jesus loves me, but then understanding why I love. See, the Jesus I know loved me first. I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. The Jesus I know straight up loved me first. So I stumble in the right direction. I, I, I move towards him. I keep my eyes on him, but I don't do this perfectly. You don't do it perfectly either, so don't throw stones. We don't do it perfectly. Thank God he structured it this way, not the other way around. Stumbling in the right direction says, I'm going to do my best to love, but I know I'm not going to do it perfectly. But I'm going to love because, Jesus, you first loved me. And you didn't just love me. You gave me the perfect, never-ending, never-faltering, unconditional love. My hope and my prayer is that you would see not just the value of it, but you would see how it changes your entire life. When you stop trying to live for these and you understand why you get to live because of these. And it changes everything. Parents, what if we could get our kids to understand this? Now that doesn't mean they don't have to do their chores and do what's right, right? It's out of the love and the gratitude we do this. Let's teach them in the right way. Let's get it in the right order. This is what freedom looks like. If you're a Christian and you don't feel like you have peace and freedom, I would venture to say it's because you've built it upside down. There's no freedom and there's no peace when these are at the bottom. Freedom and peace come from when these stay at the bottom. So my hope and my prayer is that you would have peace, that you would truly have freedom. If you're not a believer, that you would begin right here where he began with Matthew. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Nothing has to change in your life yet. The imitation happens later. It happens over time. It begins with you saying yes. Jesus, thank you so much for the story that we get to unpack. The story of how it has deep roots in my own personal life of doing just that, of stumbling in the right direction where we don't do it perfectly, but your perfect love takes care of it. And no matter how many times we fall or fail, we still have our sights set on you and we move in your direction. That our life and your love is not dependent on how well we do it. Because as Ephesians says, you already took care of it. It's because of what you have done for us. So God, with all of us here in this room, we're all in different places spiritually. For those that have already taken that, that invitation from Jesus and said yes, may we not build upside down or backwards, but may we build our faith and our life in the right order as we stumble in the right direction towards you. For those that have not said yes yet, God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, they realize and recognize it begins with a yes, not a, a life change yet. The life change comes after the yes. And it's not a special prayer. It's a simple change of heart of saying, yes, I'll follow you. May we stumble in the right direction because Jesus, you've already taken care of it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.